millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Welcome to Late Lunch Playback, featuring a selection of interviews from this third week in June as we head towards Midsummer's Day. Neve Barry, who's 40, gave birth to her ninth child recently, two days after her eldest daughter, Serena, had given birth to her first child. Here's the new mammy and granny Neve taking up the story. I've eight other kids, yeah. Um, I, I, it was just myself and my sister growing up, uh, just the two of us. I always said I wanted a big family, you know. Here I am today <laughs> with nine kids <laughs> and a, a grandson now. So, um <laughs> Yeah, it's um, been a long road. Uh, I uh, I had the, the eight kids and then uh, I decided then I wanted another one and I ended up, um, I had a couple of miscarriages in between and uh, in between before I had Archie there and um, it's just, I was saying, will I, will I go again, will I not? And I was a bit nervous and I ended up very sick after having uh, the miscarriage and that I ended up with sepsis and that and I had to get a blood transfusion. So, um, so, yeah, basically, I, I said I wasn't letting it best me to know. It kind of took its toll on me and that. And a uh, while later, I said I wasn't letting it best me. And I said, shall we go again, you know? So <laughs> here we are now with Archie now. So I'm delighted. So you, you, had, you had an even split. You see, I want to tell listeners, you had four girls first and then four and then boys in a row. Yeah. And now the fifth, so you have nine. You have now, and then the grandchild, as you said, you wanted a few children. There's ten now, are you? There's, there's ten. <laughs> that's it. We kept busy now, so yeah. yeah but, uh, I wouldn't have it any other way, you know. Yeah, you love it. You love yeah, a big family yeah. and you're delighted with the new arrival and all, all is well. Let me bring yeah. uh, your daughter into the uh, conversation. Serena, hello. Hi. Tell us this about the whole situation, because there's a story behind this, isn't there? When you yeah. knew you were expecting and your mum was expecting number nine as well. It was a bit like walking on eggshells. Yeah, it was a bit weird. So it was um, just uh, it was weird, but it was good at the same time because I like, talked to her and all that. About, we kind of had something in common. So we did, but uh, no, um, no, it was weird now finding out at the start with my mum. Yeah. Uh, but you know, it's a bit weird now having a little brother the same age as my own child now. So it is because that. the uncle is going to be younger uh, than, than his uh, nephew. Nephew, yeah, yeah. No, it is. It's weird, but funny at the same time. Uh, you know, he was born two days after Archie was born two days after uh, Cole, so. It was mm. mad now, just finding out, and even at the start and all that, it was weird for you me know, having, uh, weird for me having a brother now the same age as my own. Mm. So it's weird. Mm. So I don't think it's hit me properly yet, even. <laughs> It will. Don't worry. You have plenty yeah. of time for it to hit you as the the months and years unfold. You'll know all about it for sure. But it's a, it, this is really a lovely story. But tell me, tell me this uh, back to Neve, Mum. You know when I talk about eggshells there, and you're pregnant, and Serena's pregnant. Did you know that she was? Did she know that you were Neve? Um, no, I I didn't know. Well, it's not that I didn't know. I kind of had a funny feeling. I don't don't ask me why. I think just she. She was uh, complaining of a sick stomach on and off as well, and um, there was this particular day that Serena, Serena uh, was in the room, in the kitchen, and um, she just—I uh, was actually waiting on a call from my GP about my pregnancy, 
and uh, I next the phone rang and Serena uh, was was in the room and I said, oh, I'm, how am I going to answer this phone? She doesn't know I'm pregnant, even though Jasmine, I didn't realise Jasmine was after getting uh, seen a picture on my phone of a scan. I had to go for an early scan and Jasmine, my other daughter, had seen a picture on my phone and she um, she said it to Serena and the two of them were kind of they were watching me and waiting to see was I putting on weight and this, that and the other and sure um, then it ended up then uh, the phone the phone rang one of the days and it was the GP and I couldn't answer it because I said I can't talk about my pregnancy on the phone while Serena's there I didn't want them knowing yet and uh, I kind of looked at Serena and she was kind of looking at me because I think she was waiting on a call from her, from the GP the same day as me about about something and um, she was afraid I think she was wor- more worried that the that was about her, her pregnancy. And she was thinking that they, obviously they couldn't say anything to me. Do you know, they wouldn't be ringing me up about Serena, but she, she, in her mind, she was thinking that way. And uh, she just kind of looked worried looking. And I just kind of put two and two together then. And uh, I thought no more of it then after that, after a while. And then it was about a week later, she came in and uh, she was walking up and down the floor and she says to me, um, I have something to tell you. And we just turned around and we says, uh, what? And she says, hey, I'm pregnant. And I says, oh, God. I said, when are you due? And we were kind of, we were in shock, but uh, it was more so kind of worried at the same time for, for going into labour and all that and uh, having to go through the pregnancy and that. But um, we were delighted at the same time for her. So mm. I and did, thought, you, did you tell her? Did you tell her then that you were pregnant? I had told her, I had told her the week before that. Ah, I see. She still, yeah, she had st- still never said anything to me. Uh, <laughs> Uh, about her because she was obviously she was waiting to go for a scan and I had gone for my scan then and um, then it was just a week later after I had told them that uh, mm. she um, came out and told us then so automatically I thought maybe a couple of months maybe maybe a month after me or two months maybe but she, it was only four days in between God, you are uh, good on the yeah. time, and I have to hand you that anyway. You've nearly got it spot on the same day <laughs> each. Hey, Serena, <laughs> Serena, t- <laughs> you're only a couple of days, is right. Serena, w- w- were you nervous telling your mum? W- were you sick in the stomach besides being pregnancy sick? Uh, a little bit, but not really either. Same time because my mum had me when she was the same age as me, so uh, a bit really. I was, in a way I was, but then I knew, but there were grand with it in the end, so it was fine mm. uh, to me. I knew that they wouldn't be overly, like, annoyed about it or anything. They weren't annoyed about it at all, actually. So, no, I was actually, I was all right, so I was. What did your siblings say, uh, the others, uh, your brothers and sisters, how did they react, Serena? They they were all excited about it. They were, um, they couldn't wait, and... Even now that he's here, they're constantly looking to mind him and everything. So, like, it was all excitement from the start with them. Mm. So you've plenty of hands to hold and oh, to yeah. help. I, I I understand that for sure, and uh, that's great. Um, you know those words, uh, back to you, Neve. I have something to tell you. How many people have heard that little phrase over the years? Sorry. You know, I have something to tell you. You know, when she she said those oh, words. Yeah, yeah, that's it. You know, I was asking what's Yeah, 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 yeah. So many yeah. people will will be that's able it. to empathise with that today and understand what came after those words as well. So here's the yeah. big question for you, Mammy and Granny Neve Barry. I hate saying that word to you, but anyway, it is it is a fact. You are a grand now. Um, will you be? Will you be even? Will Neve? Here's the the sixty four million dollar question. Will you be evening up the number? Numbers again? Oh, she wouldn't know. No, <laughs> <Same> <laughs> <goes>. never say never. <laughs> <laughs> you're some woman for one woman, I have to say. Don't rule it out. That's what you're saying. It's like That's politics it. here. Don't rule yeah, it out, like... yeah. Yes, watch this space and congratulations again to Neve and Serena on their new arrivals. From new babies to a fledgling local business that's been hatched during lockdown and really taken off for Shane Ennis and Conor O'Boyle. Putt Buddy is all to do with safety on golf courses, as Conor explains. So Putt Buddy is a small device that slips down over the flagstick. It has a base plate on it and has a lever on the side. So when you actually put your ball into the hole, you lift this device with your putter and the ball rolls out onto the green. 
So you don't actually go near the flagstick at all with your hands, which is obviously very important. You know, the, the Golf and Union of Ireland mm. issued strict protocols in the flagsticks that you can amend them in any way, but you cannot touch them. So you can't put your hand on them or lift them out. They have to stay in place all the time. So we saw an opportunity to do something like this um, at the time. And we were just very lucky. We acted very quickly on the idea we had. And one thing led to another and it just kind of steamrolled from there. So just to explain to listeners, you are now absolutely putting the risk of contacting anything from the golf hole when you put your ball in completely. You're eliminating the risk completely because you do not, as you say at the minute, you don't have to even put your fingers definitely into the hole. You might touch the side of the cup or something. That's eliminated. There's no touching whatsoever. No, the only thing you touch is your putter um, and your putter hooks around the lever and you lift it up and the ball rolls out onto the green. You just pick your ball up and continue on. Now, the sceptics will always say, oh, but your ball might have touched it, but you can sanitise your ball before you put it on the green. You can wipe it, put it down in the green, mark it, then put it into the hole. Your ball drops in the hole as normal, so there's no reduced cup size. The cups aren't turned upside down. So the ball falls three inches into the hole, hits the bottom, and you lift it up your putter. So, yeah, you're eliminating any touch point whatsoever with the flag it's absolutely brilliant. Now, what's the story in terms of uh, take-up of this and orders and people being interested? So, kind of, it was something that came about. Myself, Shane, had the idea for it, and we built a website. Shane built a website very quickly. We got all the email addresses for every golf course in Ireland, and we put an email out there and with a basic website and said, we have a thing called Put Buddy. Are you interested? Just to gauge the interest first. So we had no product. We had no idea how we were going to build it. We had no idea what it was going to look like. We just had an idea about something that would work. So it was like cartoon drawings, really. And we had about 30 or 40 golf clubs straight away who got back to us and said, we'd love this. So instantly we knew there's a market there for it. So we teamed up with Robert Tully, who's a designer um, from Drada. And he hasn't played real much golf before. So he looked at it. He had no preconceived ideas about how this thing should look. He just designed the best product possible for the golf course. And that's how Put Buddy was born. So Robert sorted the manufacturing. We manufactured in Drada in Butterley Steel Fabricators in Boyne Business Park with Martin Butterley there. So we were very lucky at the time because, you know, all the manufacturing pretty locally or nationwide pretty much was all being, all stopped for PPE. Everything was HSE, but Martin was doing some work. He was building some beds for the homeless and he was doing some work for the Lord's Hospital and he had some capacity and he built us a prototype very quickly. So... That's kind of how the product came about. And since we launched it five weeks ago, we've sold into over 500 golf courses in Ireland and the UK, uh, about 150 in Ireland. So there's about 370 golf courses in Ireland. So we're in over 40% of them now. 250, 350 in the UK. We've done orders to Australia. We've done orders to Japan. We've done orders to Germany, Spain, Switzerland, the US. So it's been crazy. Um, hmm. friends, you know, as a, as a passion project that that kind of took off. You know, we have, as you said, rightly, and we said as well, Sweep is something that is our front and centre. This is a side project that, you know, so we work long hours now, obviously. We, we do Sweep during the day, we do Put Buddy in the evening. But the process we have around it is very good. You know, we have a distributor now in the US who covers America, Canada, South America, Japan, Australia, and Thailand. So they they do all that. So we don't have to worry about that. It's a license and agreement we have with those guys. We have a distributor in the UK. So it's gotten to the stage after five weeks, it's, pretty much hands off which is great it's just the most wonderful story uh, and I'm delighted for you I'm delighted for yourself and Shane and you mentioned Robert Tully there and Butterley's involved and all the people who've come together let me ask you the 64 million dollar question have you this design patented we have a patent pending so we, well we have a, we have submitted it to the patent office in Europe and our US partner has done the same in the US. So these things take a long time to go through, but once you have something submitted, you're kind of covered. But again, you know, it's it's kind of like people say, people who design a chair don't pay royalties to the guy who painted the chair 20 years ago mm. or 200 years ago. It's just one of those things. And people will always come out and copy it. And, you know, imitation is the best form of flattery. So we've seen it like, you know, we've seen... <laughs> We we made it, we had two we have two designs for this and one design is something that is very different. It's designed for there's a couple of different types of flag sticks without going into the boring elements, but one looks like a javelin, so we had to design something different for that. And then we saw someone else down the country design the exact same thing using our exact design 
Um, but you know, that's the element of it as well. It's kind of we were lucky we got in so quickly. You know, five weeks yes. ago, and co- things were just reopening and got in. But golf courses are using this for other things as well. They're looking at it outside of COVID for the likes of older golfers who can't bend into the hole to pick up their ball. You know, yeah. they can bend down yeah. to an extent where they have a little hook at the end at the end of their putter, but that won't go into the hole. So this will take your ball out, and then they can lift it with their with their putter themselves. So you know, there's kind of yes. a couple of elements to it as well, not just COVID related, which is yeah. good. Oh, it's great. By extension, there are other applications in golf. And it's simple. Put her in, out with ball, drop it back in, and the next uh, four ball or whatever come onto the green and they do the same. And so it continues right through the day. Are you a little bit, um, you know, for fellas who are real go-ahead with sweep and uh, the car buying business there, are you taking a little aback? It's been so successful so quickly and the take-up on it? Yeah, definitely. You know, it's, it's something it, we kind of said to ourselves, this kind of opportunity comes up once in the blue moon where you actually can get something to market very quickly and be the first to market. Especially with, especially nowadays when there's people designing things all, all the time. But we were very lucky that we, that we teamed up with Robert on it because myself and Shane, like there's a lot of things that you can bluff in life, but manufacturing definitely isn't one of them. Um, mm. No matter what, like <laughs> we had thought about 3D printing this thing. We had thought about making it out of plastic, but the actual property is made out of, Steel. It's steel fabricated. It's powder coated, powder coated in zinc. Then it's powder coated in black gloss. Yeah. So it looks really good as well. But most importantly, it'll last a long time. Like structurally, this thing won't break. You know, you could hit it with your putter in frustration, but you'll damage your putter more than you'll damage the actual yes. putty. The putt so, putt yeah, it's... like it's it has been. You know, it's, it's been surprising mm. how well. But it's it's a really good product and it's priced really well. Like it's three hundred and fifty euro. A set of 18 of them of something that's going to last you know 20 euro a hole and this thing can be used 200 times a day on every hole so from that point of view it, it's great but Robert was really good on the design front and he, he reacted very quickly you know any feedback we got from mm. golf courses about how we could even improve it Robert was straight in tweaked the design slightly and Martin then in, in Budley Steel Fabric he reacted as quickly you know and he produced you know he was producing 500 of these a day some story, well done to the buddies on spotting an opportunity and designing a solution where there's clearly a need. Our focus on Italia 90, 30 years on, continued all week. One of our own and greatest ever soccer internationals, Stephen Staunton, joined me, the only player to have played every match in all three World Cup finals for Ireland. In 1990, Stephen was the youngest member of Jack Charlton's squad and I wondered if age made it more difficult in a group with lots of experience. Not really, because I I was uh, just a young fella in a very experienced and uh, Liverpool squad, so I was sort of well used to it by then. And uh, I suppose, you know, you just see yourself as one of the lads in the end and... uh, Again, invaluable experience from all the senior players. So it, it was uh, it was a great honour and a privilege to have played with so many great players. Was that squad, you know, so united? Is that what it had? I, I often wondered what what had that team and that squad in Italy. Was there a unity? Was that a big part of it? Absolutely. I mean, Jack. Jack used to encourage us to do everything together. You know, if if somebody was going out for a drink, we all went for a drink. If we were going out for a game of snooker, we all went. If we were going to pictures, we all went. You know, it, it was that type. And uh, look, the lads got on absolutely fabulously well together. Um, there was no animosity amongst anyone. And uh, yeah, it was... It was a united and unique uh, squad, to be fair. Mm. And, and, you know, you, you mentioned Jack there. You, you know it yourself, Stephen. You were born here in this country in a number where others were born in the UK. Others used the, the, the granny rule, as they call it, to, to play for Ireland. But th- that made no difference. The Irishness was, was to the core with everybody. Well, look, when, you, when, you, when you've got a manager that won the World Cup with probably our greatest rivals and he he ended up more Irish than any Irish man I've ever known you know he he loved Ireland he, he loved going there he loved fishing and shooting and just being part of the Irish setup and that transformed through all 
the English-born players that were in the mm. squad. But, you know, it's true no fault of their own. A lot of Irish men and women had to leave home and back in the day and set up roots elsewhere. And a lot of them came to England. And their kids and grandkids who ended up being some of our players played for our country. And, you know, they wore, they wore the green shirts uh, with immense pride. And, well, you saw that in their performances. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, and point really well made indeed, Stephen. Uh, just running through the games, of course, you began with the 1-1 uh, with Italy, uh, Sheedy's equaliser there, nil-nil with Egypt, and then uh, Niall Quinn getting the goal uh, uh, 71 minutes uh, on the longest day of the year, the 21st of June, which is coming up the anniversary this weekend uh, against Holland. Were you aware, you know, being out there from a player's perspective in the camp, how mad the country had gone back home. Yeah, well, I was fortunate in 88 to be part of the squad. And myself and Mark Kelly were left in Dublin when the squad went off to play in a, a mini tournament. I think it was in Norway. And Jack just said to me, uh, if there's an injury, you're on the plane. And he said, if there's two injuries, Mark, you're coming as well. So... We were left in Finstown House in Lucan uh, for 10 days, the two of us, and waiting to see if anybody got injured. So from the, uh, their point of view, nobody got injured. So myself and Mark uh, left the squad. I went back up to Dundalk and I watched, watched the games in the pubs with my brothers and I was a fan. So I I experienced what went on in Stuttgart and all the shenanigans of uh, Euro 88. So I was trying to relay that to the boys and in 1990, and they didn't believe me, to be honest. And they only started realising when videotapes came over after the qualification uh, from the group stages. And the boys sat down and watched all these videos of Dublin, Galway, Cork, you know, all over the country. And how the people were celebrating, how the streets were so quiet when the games were on, and then celebrating afterwards. So, you know, I think they started to realise, and, you know, it was was just absolutely fabulous to be part of it. Mm. You went on, of course, then to uh, that unbelievable game against uh, Romania, went to penalty kicks. Did you take a spot kick? I was just trying to think myself. Did you uh, take a punt at goal in the, in the shootout? No, I came off after 90 minutes with a tight hamstring. Oh, uh, yeah. David O'Leary came on for me. Yes. So, uh, had I been on the field, I was down to take a penalty, yes. But, uh, mm. fortunately, I didn't have to take one and we won it anyway, so... <laughs> Well, that's a bit of history there because had you played O'Leary replaced you and he took the vital kick would you have been taking one of the uh, uh, at that point would have been you for O'Leary is that where you were scheduled Uh, I I would have been taking that penalty yes wow there you go the pressure the pressure the pressure no bother to you Stephen not a bothering you to knock a home you'd have done the very same I'm sure look on you go to uh, Rome and that famous visit to the Vatican and the Pope and all that's around it taking on the host and that one solitary goal I'll never forget Scalacci and the way it went in now looking back 30 years later were we close? Do you think, honestly, with the little more rub of the green, we might have even gone to the semis? Well, uh, you know, when you when you've got the security uh, guards at the hotel telling us that we deserve to win, and they were Italian through and through, uh, we felt we were very unlucky. Yes, on the night, and to be honest with you. Jack had already mentioned that Argentina in the in the whole run up, they were only frightened of us getting through. They didn't want to play us, so they were hoping for an Italian win. So that tells you everything. What reputation we had uh, around the world? Yeah. 
yeah, nobody wanted to play Ireland at that stage. While you're talking about Italy, here, Stephen, have a listen to this. Easy, onto it comes Houghton. And Houghton with a shot, and it's there! <laughs> yeah, giant stadium, Stephen. George Hamilton actually on the commentary there, and uh, that goal of Ray Houghton, the man popping up again. And I was actually at that game that day myself, just sitting behind the Irish bench. What a memory that is. The reason I play it, I know we're talking about Italia 90. Put you on the spot here 102 caps for Ireland. Your greatest memory, your greatest game that really will stick with you forever. Oh, God. Uh... So many, I, I'll never forget mm. any of the games in any of the uh, World Cups. Um, God, on the spot. I don't <laughs> know, it's a difficult one, to be honest with you. It would be a hard one to choose. I think, you know, there was so many, uh, so many great memories, even in yeah. the qualifications for uh, certain ones. I suppose... Going out to Iran was a, an unbelievable experience. And, you know, no team has ever won out there, believe it or not. And I was just praying to God that we didn't concede in the first half, which we were fortunate enough to, you know, concede very late on with only about 60, 90 seconds to go. So that was in the bag. But that, for me, that was, uh, that was a a massive game for us and a, a big memory because that you know to qualify for Japan and Korea was uh, was an unbelievable achievement as well that game in itself was uh, unreal but I mean I can go through my debut and different mm. different games and different performances but you know each and every one was just special and I'll treasure them till the day I go Yes, and indeed you should, every one of them. And, and aren't you so fortunate to be able to say that, that you have so many wonderful memories in those 102 games uh, that you played for Ireland. Just back to where we began the conversation to finish. When you were called into the squad initially as a youngster, and you were a youngster, as you said, at Liverpool, did you ever envisage that you'd cross the 100 mark, you'd be at three World Cups, playing in three different positions, and all those great moments you enjoyed with Ireland? Could you see that? Early on, not not on your Nelly. <laughs> I mean, we never qualified for the World Cup. I mean, yeah. I've just been very fortunate to have been part of our most successful uh, era in soccer in in the country. Will we ever see it again? I hope we do. Uh, it'd be lovely to see the squad doing really well again, but. Uh, you know, I, I I was so privileged to have been part of it and been part of it for such a long time as well, which, you know, it was fantastic yeah, memories and great squads, great people. And uh, that, not just on the pitch, but those off the pitch as well, from the physios to the kit men to, to everybody that was involved. It was just great times. Yeah, great times indeed. I, I'll tell you just before we finish, and I, I think I may have mentioned this to you in the, in the past, my late father, Brendan, was your number one fan. And whenever I'd come back from any of the games, no matter how you played, Stephen Staunton, and of course you always played well, there was only one man of the match for him. Oh, he'd say to me, Staunton, Jesus, outstanding. You can forget about the rest and there'll be no team without that man. Anyway, listen, it's great to talk to you today on the 30th anniversary of the Italian win in Giant Stadium and 30 years on since the World Cup. Stephen, I appreciate it. Thank you indeed. Thanks very much, Jerry. Very biased, but I appreciate it. <laughs> and why not? Isn't Stan one of us? Tony O'Kane owned the Century Bar in Dundalk at that time and he organised a group of 30 supporters who based themselves in Malta and the crack kicked off from day one, as Tony explains. Oh, well, the, the, on the first day, yeah, we were there. We, we, we arrived, I think, uh, very late on Saturday, on Saturday night it was and uh, there was a, a few Castle Ballingham boys. It was about eight of them on the trip with us, Sherry McGrory and Benny Kennedy and Joe Riley and uh, Ian McGrory and a few others. And they were in the apartment above us. And I told the boys uh, when we clocked into the apartment, they said, remember, boys, don't use the water. It has to be bottled water. So we got a knock on our apartment door the next morning. Jerry was standing outside with a pot. Jerry, what have you in the pot? Porridge. 
And I said, you didn't use the tap water and did you? No, no, we had no bottled water and he says, we made the porridge and vodka. <laughs> <laughs> Because I never heard, I never heard of that in my life. <laughs> Put a bottle of vodka into the pot. There was four of them oh in my the pot. They made the, made the porridge and vodka. Yeah. <laughs> I tell you, you'd be in fine vettel after a, b- a bowl of Absolutely, porridge. Yeah, you certainly would. You would, and and you know, you, you talk about Malta, and there was a guy with you on the trip, George Flynn. He was an ex Garda. Now he had a bit of a, an experience with a taxi driver there. He had, uh, yeah, George. Um, well, we went uh, into the sea. You know, we were right on St Paul's Bay, and there was beautiful sea. And uh, George decided to go in for a swim, and he walked into the water, and there was very sharp coral, and he caught his leg and badly gashed his calf. Now it needed stitching, so he went off to the hospital in a taxi with Mick McManus um, um, and the taxi driver very friendly he saw the, like, well George they get stitched and when they went to pay him he says no 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 he wouldn't accept money he says no I'll get, there's my card I'll collect you and when you have to get off to get out the stitches call me back and I'll come up so George went up maybe four or five days later to uh, get the stitches out and the taxi driver was talking to him on the way up to the hospital. He says, what do you do in Ireland? And George says, well, I'm a, I'm a guard. I'm a policeman. Oh, he says, uh, I have a big run-in with a policeman here in my locality, he says. He says, um, I hire cars out as well as do taxis. And all the tourists are uh, going out in the hired cars and they're parking them everywhere. And they're getting loads and loads of parking tickets. And the policeman's coming to me and telling me I have to pay these parking tickets. I says, no, but he's adamant that I have to pay for them. So a couple of days later, he says, I was out with my wife in another part of Malta having a meal, and I see down the co- in the corner, cosily tucked away, my policeman friend, but he's not with his wife. He's with <laughs> another lady. <laughs> so he came looking. A few days later, he came looking for me again for the parking tickets, and he was adamant I had to pay for them. And I says, now we have to come to a compromise, he says. He says, uh, I was in a certain restaurant the other night and you were to- uh, cosily uh, tucked away in the corner with a lady, not your wife. So what are you going to do about the parking tickets? Well, he says we've come to a great arrangement. I'm going to tear up the parking tickets. You will get not anymore and you didn't see me. <laughs> <laughs> wonderful, wonderful. The other thing was, you know, the, you mentioned the England game and, and the security around that. There was a 48-hour alcohol ban in Sardinia before the game, but there's always a way for the Irish when the Italians want to make a Euro. Yeah, well, yeah, well uh, in Cagliari, you know, the first match, 48-hour alcohol ban, no, nowhere opened, and there was very, very strict security with England fans being there. But in the second match, five days later, we played Egypt and Palermo. And we Mm. flew in from Malta about uh, six o'clock in the morning. And we were in a big green area. We had nothing to do. There was a few few young lads there about on bicycles. And they were running to the shop for us and getting us water and ice cream and different things. So myself and Mick McManus and Joe McGrath from Dublin, George Flynn, we went for a bit of a walk. And after about walking for a mile, we saw this enclosure. It was like a, a small park big tall trees around us but we saw a beer sign on the gate and uh, we opened the gate and walked in and there was about 30 people inside drinking and uh, I walked over to the guy behind the bar and he says uh, we're from Ireland we're here uh, for the football and any chance of a drink certainly he says certainly get your friends <laughs> one of the lads went back to tell the other so there was 30 down in the bar for about 5 hours before the match and uh when, when we were leaving to go to the match, I said, we're not flying back to Malta, to Malta until about uh, four in the morning. Is there any chance we can come back? No problem, he says. So we went back there again for another couple of hours. We had food and drink. And about two o'clock in the morning, I said to him, um, now we need taxis to get to the airport. He says, leave that with me. It's okay. So we saw them finishing up. He's putting down the shutters and all the staff were there and the chefs and bar staff. And the next thing he says, you don't need taxis. We are taking you to the airport. All the staff. He got all the staff that all open top cars and all the Italian flags and the Irish flags, three abreast down the motorway to the airport. <laughs> Brilliant send off, yeah. <laughs> so there's, when there's a will, there's a way. The Italians were oh, out yeah. to make a buck and of but course the, you guys wanted a, a, the, an out drink. Yeah, but the other thing, Jerry, we were in, we were in, uh, in Sicily, ma- uh, ma- mafia country, and at one stage I went up to get a drink at the bar and he leaned over to get something out of the fridge and I saw he was wearing a shoulder holster with a gun in it. <laughs> so, oh. 
yeah. You had yeah, to I watch your step as well. <laughs> no way, Tony. But look, at you guys had a great time. And of course, you were there for the, the key game in the group when Niall Quinn got the equaliser and sent us through to Genoa. But I believe you got a call from a good lady back in Dundalk who was uh, holding the fort in the century bar. Oh, yeah. I, I, well, I was um, a daily... Uh, in, con- in daily contact with the pub and it was just crazy at home absolutely crazy uh, she'd say the place is just going mad the whole country is closed down it's like a, a Mardi Gras or a carnival you know and uh, when uh, when we qualified now a few of the boys decided they were going to go on to Genoa but I I basically had to come home or fortnight the rest of the guys come home because the pub was so busy she says you have to get back here now they've qualified for the, for the uh, quarterfinals and heading off um, to Genoa and Rome, so I had to come home, Jerry. It was just, it was just too much. But uh, coming home was brilliant too, because the, the, those couple of matches with Romania and uh, Italy will live in the memory forever. Yes. The penalty shootout, brilliant. Yes, Homer away. We Irish were in a frenzy. Colm Crossan, through the company he worked for, Funtrek, organised World Cup trips for thousands of Irish fans. Mostly all went well, but even today, 30 years on, a near catastrophe on the way to that crucial Holland match still haunts Colm's memories. Well, that sends a shiver down my spine, uh, even just to think about it. Uh, the context of it was this was the third game of, uh, third of three games in the qualifiers, uh, and uh, Ireland were, uh, were in the mix, so it needed a result uh, in, uh, in the game against Holland. And so people were traveling in very good spirits. There was great crack. Um, uh, they'd probably got used to the crazy train journeys at this stage. And uh, after tra- after um, we traveled uh, you know, across the Straits and into Palermo, the train stopped. And uh, it stopped in this little, uh, this little village, in a train station in this little village. And um, we assumed initially this was just one of the many quirks of Italian train travel, but mm-hmm. it actually turned out to be a little bit more serious than that. There was, um, there, there was a strike uh, from factory workers where they had blockaded the line further up the way and were uh, making this demonstration, preventing uh, people traveling by train um, to the match as a consequence. So um, we got wind of the word of this. I don't know that the general population on the train uh, actually got wind of the word. Um, and it looked, uh, it looked as though we were potentially heading for a really serious situation with 1,000 or 1,100 people not being able to get to the match and spilling out into this one-horse little village. Uh, which probably had one rickety TV <laughs> in, a, in a cafe type of thing, you know. Um, so it, things were not looking good, I can tell you. And um, this was a time for heroes to say. And um, so one of the one of the team uh, who was fluent Italian speaker and was uh, a union man. Um, uh, we trundled him into the police car and sent him up to negotiate with the strikers on the uh, on the track some miles up the road. And um, he successfully manages to go negotiate with them on the basis of, lads, these are your brothers. This is the proletariat. This is the working class that's on this train. Uh, the fat cats have all flown in. <laughs> Don't stop your socialist brothers from uh, your, 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 your working class brothers from getting to the game. And amazingly, it worked, Sherry. Uh, it was the only train that was allowed uh, through that strikers' blockade that day. Oh. And the rest became history. My thanks to Stephen, Tony, and Colm for those wonderful memories of Italia 90. I can't recommend Roisin Meany's new book, The Restaurant, highly enough. The story revolves around the Food of Love restaurant, and I wondered in the course of our conversation, is it based on a real eatery? Well, no. I, up to this, I had never heard of a restaurant in that style that the Food of Love is. But um, since I decided I wanted to write a, a book about this 
restaurant that I thought I had made up. Um, other people got in touch and said, no, 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 they've, that, they've had that in San Francisco for years and they've had that in other places. Now, when I was in San Francisco, as you mentioned in your intro, I, I never came across a restaurant like that. But apparently it's been a thing. And if it's in San Francisco, you may be sure it's in other parts of the States as well and maybe in Europe now as well. Yeah, and of course, at the heart of the restaurant, I have to say again, is this oval table, this large, big table where friendships are made. Well, yeah, that's the that's the hope anyway. Yes, it's just uh, it's just one table because Emily, the owner, had no choice. The place is too small to have a few different tables and people separated out. So she decided she'd just have the one table and put as many chairs around it as she could get. Mind you, she'd be in trouble now with the social distancing. Yeah. Um, but uh, and and just let people come in and sit down and and strike up conversations with whoever is around the table as well. It wasn't a dating thing. There was nothing like that in it. Her idea was to have some place that somebody who might have to eat alone otherwise could come and have someone to chat with as they had their lunch or their dinner. Oh, poor Emily, you ditched her at the altar to start <laughs> off. I did not. It was he did it. I didn't do it at all. <laughs> well, I, you have to give your characters some bit of angst and heartbreak in their past so that you have something to play around with, you know. <laughs> mm, well, you certainly caught us from the word go uh, oh. opening with, with with a story like that. But look, at here's the thing. Some of the characters that uh, really will stay with me, me for a long time. And, and, and I have a question for you on this. But when I think of uh, uh, the widower Bill, uh, you know, who's had little contact with his only child, Astrid from Austria, and the reason why she came to Ireland. And then you have Heather, the single mum, who's estranged from our parents with, with our background in the United States how does that mind of yours create these wonderful people oh god Jerry you know I honestly don't know how it happens I don't know how it works but I I will tell you that I'm a useless sleeper so I think my brain just is working away during the night um, sorting out all these people for me and uh, not letting me sleep (laughs) I think that's how it happens (laughs) <laughs> I think you and I have to exchange notes off air, let me say, because right. I'm sort of in the same boat myself. By God, I get less and less sleep as, as the years go on. Oh, but God. look, in, 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 in weaving this this together, uh, the, the characters, the setting, the book. And by the way, I, I don't want to give it all away because I want people to buy the blimmin' book and read yeah, it. It's absolutely <laughs> brilliant, you know. But uh, uh, there's good. Well, there's a dilemma for Emily, isn't there? That something comes back to having ha- putting her in a position that she has to make a big decision. Yeah, yeah. But again, you have to have things like that in the book, too, so that the readers will also be on the edge of their seats, hopefully, wondering which way she'll go. Um, And I know my mother uh, was not impressed with Emily when she (laughs) did something in the book towards the start. You'll know what I'm talking about. Yes, I do. I lost all respect for Emily then. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, listen, your your mother's a solid woman. I can tell you that for sure. She is. And and I'm going to tell listeners before we say too much, there is such a surprise, folks, at the end of this book. Honestly, you'll be just you'll be just caught when you read it. I have to say to you, like I mentioned it is 17, isn't this? I know yeah. you've written children's books as well, but this is number 17 uh, since you began. Yeah, 17th, ad- 17th adult book. Yeah, it is. Yeah. I know, I can hardly believe it myself. It's an, it's an array of uh, themes and characters and people and places, etc. When I mentioned that you set off on this journey back in 2001, did you have it in your mind that I am going to become an international bestseller? Was that your goal? Absolutely not, Jerry. I I thought, I wonder if I can write a book. And that was as far as I went. I had never even thought... I had been thinking about it for a few years before that. But I I had never imagined that I'd end up a writer. Like you said, I went into teaching when I came out of, of, of secondary school. I went into college and I became a primary teacher purely, really, or mostly, because both my parents had been primary teachers in their time. Um, And I just kind of blindly followed along. I always liked children and I liked, you know, the idea of working with them. Um, And I did enjoy teaching when I did it. But and only that I was a reader. That was my only interaction with books, really. I was always a reader. But I don't know when. Well, I do know when I went to I, I took a career break from my teaching job in 1990, I think it was. And I went to um, 
I went to England and I got a job in an advertising agency writing ads because I had won a good few competitions before that. And um, they, by, by finishing, you know, that finished the sentence, I would like to win or whatever, because. Yes. And I seemed to have a kind of a flair for that. I won a car and I won a couple of holidays and air miles and what have you. And somebody said, when I was thinking, what could I do just to get a break from teaching? Somebody said, I think it was one of my cousins said, why don't you look for a job in advertising? Because, you know, you're good with the snappy slogans. So that's what I did. And it kind of sowed the seed. But again, I went back into teaching after doing advertising for a few years, having decided that, by the way, that I wasn't glamorous enough for the world of advertising, and I wasn't. But um, then when I came back, I was kind of thinking in my head, I wonder, could I write a book? And then when I went to San Francisco, I still had no idea whether I could write it or not, but I thought, sure, I'll, I'll get it out of my system. I'll try, and if I fail, so be it. So that's where it started, and I just kept going after that. That was a very yes, long answer uh, to your question. <laughs> no, 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 listen, it explains it. But hey, I just picked up on something there. You won a car. I did when I was 18, would you believe? I was just uh, just about to go into college and it was on the back of a cornflakes box, Kellogg's and Ford. We had got together. It was the Ford Fiesta. It was just coming into Ireland. I'm very old, Jerry. And it was, it was the first year of the Ford Fiesta and I decided to heck, I'll try this. I had never entered a competition. Well, you couldn't. You had to be 18 or over. So mm. I just thought, God, I'm old enough now. And I entered it and I won the car. And then after that, of course, I was addicted to competitions and I won loads of other things as well. Isn't that brilliant? Yeah. Fair juice to <laughs> Kellogg's and, and Ford. And I remember, I'm like yourself, I can remember those f- first Fiestas as well. Yeah. And they were really in demand and they were all the rage. Mind you, the Fiesta still is today, I have yeah. to say. But that's great. Oh, wasn't that just a, such a fill up for you? Did you did you keep the car yourself or did no, you drive it or what happened? It was crazy even entering that competition because I was a penniless student and I hadn't had even one driving lesson. So it was it was out of the question really for me to keep the car. So I sold it. And it was, now we were back in punts of course then and I got two and a half thousand punts, would you believe, for the car. And that was the going rate of a new Ford Fiesta that year. Well, so that well, is definitely I'm... ageing us now, Jerry. if you can remember that too. <laughs> you were in the clover with the cash anyway, that's for sure. Well, hey, I listen, you were, I was looking at it um, at an interview you did there last year and you had a significant birthday and you made an assertion and I want you to tell me what's uh, underpinning this. You yeah. said you are going to get the cheque from whoever is the president when you hit the 100. Oh, I, well, I hope so, yeah. There's good genes in my family. My mother is 91. She'll be 92 next month. And my father will be 94 in September. Oh. And they're still going strong. Now, Dad is a little bit kind of frail and weak at this stage, as you'd expect. But they're still living at home, still independent. And, you know, uh, it's looking good. And Mam's mam lived until she was 96. I had another. Now, he actually wasn't part of my family, but he was married to one of my mother's cousins. And he lived until he was 100. Too. So you could kind of say it's in the family. <laughs> oh, it's in the genes. You're the headed genes. there. I may get the Minister for Finance to plan ahead and budget to <laughs> the future and build in that check down the road. The yes. other thing is you mention, and I, I just want to talk about this for a moment. You, you talk about and it's a wonderful interview, which I have to say, and you talk oh. about what you've learned through life. But you say the one thing in life that people should focus on is Kindness. You believe it can change people and the world. I'm a great believer in the power of kindness, Jerry. I, I've long believed that. I think it has the power to change mindsets and change people's behaviour. And I just think if people, if people knew how strong and how powerful it is, I think everyone would be trying to practice kindness wherever they could. It's a message that I hope people would listen to and heed and take on board because. Well, I'm inclined to agree with you myself. It's the Mm. one thing that can make all the difference for all of us. And perhaps, and my hope is that this time when a lot of kindness, as you know, Roisin, is being shown in Ireland and around the world, could we just hold on to that? Would that be a wish of yours? That's exactly what I hope as well. It's really my fervent hope now after all this. And, and I know there are lots of other things to consider, but if we could just hang on to the community spirit that has been engendered by this pandemic and, and just how people are looking out for one another, like I think we used to years ago in Ireland, by all accounts, that we had lost 
in the in the rat race and in the you know commercialism and whatever. It's we're getting it back now, and if, it's it's wonderful to see. And if we could just hang on, I don't know, I don't know whether we will or not, but I'm I'm hoping and hopeful. So am I, Roisin. Let's all be kinder to one another. To finish off our look back this week, husband and wife Seamus Brett and Margaret Brennan have combined musical talents to produce a number of wonderful interpretations of songs they love while at home. Margaret tells the story of the walls and later on Seamus propositions late lunch listeners. I heard the song, I was watching Afterlife, Ricky Gervais, uh, the second series. And uh, I was just down in the bed watching it on my iPad and I heard the song and I said, oh my God, that is a beautiful, beautiful song. And just went researching it and I said, I came down to Shay actually. And I said, we have to do this song, you know, and we Hmm. just both fell in love with it straight away. And it just, because we've been spending so much time at home and because we've been working on so much music that we haven't had a chance to do up to now, we've we've started into an album and we've just had so much more time on our hands. And we just said, we, we just do this beautiful song to describe how we feel about mm. being stuck at home, you know, and it's, it's as, as it started, we thought we we're going to be stuck at home, but as it's gone on, we've actually enjoyed being at home. So, and I think the song describes maybe what the walls of your house, the experience that your house holds, of all the experiences that you've had within the house. Yeah, and that's, yeah. that's, that's where the song comes from, if these old walls could speak. You know, what, yes. stories would, what stories would the walls of your house tell? I particularly like the line, stubborn streak. That really catches me there. Because <laughs> that's exactly what I'm married to. She's fantastic, but she's great. Yeah, she digs in and that's it. And she decides, <laughs> there you go, Jerry. I think she's trying to say that I'm stubborn. <laughs> <laughs> there is a line in the song about having a stubborn streak, but I think it applies to shame more than me. Yeah. So, you know, I'll, Margaret, 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 will I tell the Perry you now? And I know you've been home for a few months of that, but don't bring those tete-a-tetes onto the airwaves and LMFM or I, I, I'm in big trouble here. Keep that to yourselves. But look at me here. I'm just glad this is radio because I'm kicking them under the table. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love it. I love it. Seamus, you know, Margaret tells us there the whole uh, backstory to this and, and how it came about. What about you from the musical point of view? Just explain to listeners how you go about then, you know, putting your version and your stamp on this music wise. It's That's a very interesting question because uh, I, I would, like, as you, we've chatted many times before, and I was involved in music. I, I, from a musician's point of view, I would have been part of a. I would have been interested in the chords and how the thing was constructed. And actually meeting Margaret totally changed that. Like if you asked me the, word, the lyrics of a song 20 years ago, I couldn't tell you the lyrics. Yet I could play pretty much anything anybody would throw me from every gin don't I would have played in over the years. But I would never really have listened properly to the lyrics of songs. And one of the things that, apart from uh, loving her and marrying her, one of the things that she brought to my life was that ability to, to go and listen to songs and to listen to what they really are about, which is something that the normal everyday person who would go to a gig or listen to songs, they would have done that much more than I as a musician would have done, if that makes any sense as a, as a, as a piece yeah. of information. I would have mm-hmm. analysed a piece of music and broken it down by what it meant to me musically, whereas you people, without ever actually sometimes listening to what the song is really about, uh, and that's, something that she brought to the table that really would have totally changed my view on music. Is it, Margaret, um, a song that came from... There was a movie uh, back uh, a while back in the 90s called If These Walls Could Talk. And, I, uh, of course, uh, the, the show then on television in the 2000s. What's the, w- w- tell us a little bit about the song itself. Well, the song was written by Jimmy Webb, who um, I didn't know a huge amount about before I went researching. Um, and he's just written some of the most amazing songs. Mm. By the time I get to Phoenix, Galveston, all the all the songs that were recorded by Glenn Campbell, for instance. Yes. And Glenn Campbell actually did do a version of this song. And Nancy Griffith also did a version. So when I went looking to research the song, I found all these amazing versions. And just we just kind of ended up with our own version then at the end of the day. But Jimmy Webb is the songwriter. And he, he, wrote, he wrote that song, MacArthur's Park. I don't know if you remember that. Oh, yes. Um, Classic. Yeah, he wrote that. So he's just an amazing songwriter. And I just didn't realise this was the man behind all these incredible songs. Yes. You know, it's just amazing when you hear something, you just get sucked into this huge web of information that you never had before. You just go to Wikipedia and you just start to learn, you know, the yes. talent that this person has. And he's still there. He records the version of the song himself, um, you know, and he's a, he's a, a well-matured musician at this stage who's been through 
all the words that life throws at us. And you can hear all that in his voice when he's singing the song himself. You can hear that he's lived life to the full, you know. Yeah, yeah. And um, it's just it's just amazing to take a song like that and just just wrap yourself around it, you know. Well, 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 well you two certainly have. And I sat here. I, I haven't played it once. I won't tell you many times I've played it because oh. I, 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 I just absolutely, I say to both of you, I love your version of it. And oh. the lyrics, as Seamus said there a moment ago, I listened as well. When you listen, you know, the first time, say, and then yeah. the words, those words, they apply yeah. to so anybody listening today who yeah. has a home, who's lived in it for a while. This song is about you yeah. and your house and the walls, isn't it? And what happens within those walls. Yes. You know, it's amazing. Mm. You know, and I think the walls of our houses soak up the atmosphere and they soak up our lives. You know, yeah. and they, they make they make the wall, the, the walls become our home. Mm. You know, from all the things that happen to us within those walls. It's amazing, really. Can, can you imagine if the walls of our houses could actually speak at some stage? <laughs> and, and the amount of... I'd say be telling Shane to shut up on a regular basis. <laughs> 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 yeah, uh, <laughs> I, 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 I used to have a little... When I was single living in Stamullen and I had the studio in the house, and at that stage... I used to have an awful lot of people. I, I would have done a lot of the kind of the bigger artists in Ireland doing kind of with Dalton Records, and there'd be a lot of people through the house. And one guy famously said, "If that dog of yours could talk, you'd be in serious trouble." Because <laughs> you know the way that 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 the walls could tell stories, and it's yes. it's it, it, and the ama- the amazing light that we lead within these walls. Yeah. And and as we've discovered in the last couple of days, the dark secrets that walls can hold. Yeah, yeah, that's right. It's not always good. It's not always good, yeah. Uh, Yeah, and you know, like, thank God they can't speak. I'm just sitting in this room here thinking that, please, stay quiet, keep it to yourselves, Wall. Are you listening, (laughs) Wall? Do you remember the Shirley Valentine film? Hello, Wall. Yeah, Yeah, hold on to it there. That's what we're all saying. But look, I I, I want to play the song now and say to both of you, we'll be talking again shortly. You are marvellous, and I love this song. Well done to you. Keep up the great work. Right. Thank, Thank you for so joining much. me. And here it is. Very, very, very brief. Where you want to go? To. If you want, at some stage, to get your listeners to pick a song and for us to record it specifically for your show, and if you if you want to do that at some stage, and they say, right, go go through the songs that mean an awful lot to them. I, you know our style of singing that would suit a piano on Margaret's voice. Yes. The challenge is there if you want to do it at some stage and we'll record it specifically for the Jerry Carey. Jerry oh, wow. That's such a lovely offer. Are you listening, listeners? Have you sung? Have a listen to this. If there's something on your mind, get in touch with me. 086-1800-658 by WhatsApp or text and Thank it'll you. be recorded for you. You're wonderful people. Seamus Brett, Margaret Brennan. Here you go. This is what it's all about. Thank you. Thank you. Bye, Jerry. Bye. If these old walls If these old walls could speak Of things that they remember well Parties and people raising hell A couple in love living week to week Rooms full of laughter If these old walls This old hall, if hollowed halls could talk, these would have a tale to tell of sun going down and dinner bell, and children playing at hide and seek from floor to rafter. If these old halls could speak They would tell you that I'm sorry For being cold and blind and weak They would tell you that it's only That I have a stubborn streak these old walls could speak
simply magical. Keep on doing what you're doing, folks. That's it for the moment. We'll have more interesting conversations with great guests soon for you on our next podcast. In the meantime, do join us each afternoon for Late Lunch Live from 1.30 on your station, LMFM. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.